So Merry Christmas, the first Sunday after Christmas. So we are still very much in the mode of celebration and festivity. Many of you, I'm sure, still have travel plans and parties to attend, maybe some gifts to give still and time to spend with loved ones. It really is a special time of the year. And for the church, it's special, obviously, because we believe that the event that we're taking our minds to during this season is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. I heard one pastor say that one of the reasons that the the Christmas season is so important, that we not just limit it to Christmas Day, is because the incarnation is too great of a mystery for us to limit our um, thoughts to a single day on the calendar. This is a big deal for the church, that God would become one of us. He would put on flesh, make his dwelling among us. So today we are going to spend the majority of our time in the Gospel of Matthew. This is where we were last week in chapter 1 as we looked at the story of Mary and Joseph receiving that message, that really inconceivable message that they would be having a baby, despite the obvious absurdity of that claim. So today we are going to continue reading Matthew's story about some of the early days in the life of Jesus. In chapter 2, this is after that initial story at the beginning of chapter 2, the visit from, well, that quintessential Christmas scene, the visit from the wise men from the east visiting with their intention of worshiping this new king. If you remember, that section ended with those visitors being warned in a dream not to return to Herod as he had instructed or requested and as they had agreed to do, but instead, because of this dream, they depart for their own country by another way. We pick the story up in verse 13, and we're not going to get very far before I want to say something, but verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So there are a lot of these dreams. Joseph isn't the first one in this story to receive a dream. And before we continue, I think it's worth mentioning that some of these accounts of the miraculous things surrounding the birth of Jesus aren't altogether unique in the ancient world. For instance, the text that Austin dealt with last week, Matthew chapter 1, spoke of the miraculous conception of Jesus, what we commonly understand as the virgin birth of Christ. And even that detail isn't completely unique. There were other sort of, I guess, pagan equivalents in that day. There are origin stories of pagan deities that tell of virgin births. And so at times the claim that you'll hear is, well, maybe this story that we are hearing from the gospel author Matthew, maybe this is just another one of those. Maybe Matthew and Luke are just trying to latch on to this idea of a virgin birth in order to prove their point that Jesus is God. Despite the fact that I don't know if that's the sort of detail you want to include if you're trying to prove that something is, in fact, verifiable history. But New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes that The pagan examples of, uh, I guess, divine impregnation that were fairly common in that day bear no resemblance at all to what we 
find in the Gospels describing the virgin birth. But nonetheless, despite a lot of those differences and distinctions, there are also some surface-level parallels between this story that we're reading and other ancient stories. We, We could even think of the Buddha, who was born several hundred years before the birth of Christ, and there were allegedly miraculous occurrences surrounding his birth as well. So there are some similarities and parallels, but there are also some striking differences that I think are significant, not least because as Christians, we are not only interested in the teachings of Jesus, We are certainly interested in his teachings, but we also believe that his life, his life as a historical reality, that his life was important. The manner in which he lived, the manner in which he died and rose again to life, those details of his life are important. And the story that we're reading today is a part of the manner in which he lived. This is how his life begins. And for us as followers of Jesus, it's an important detail. So again, after we've only made it through the first part of that first verse, but after the wise men depart, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. We continue reading in the middle of verse 13 and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So his life begins, begins in a similar way to that in which it ends. It begins on the run. And I think there are potentially several important things we learn from this account about our God and about what our God was doing in Jesus Christ. Now the parallels in this story between Jesus and Moses are unmistakable. You've probably picked up on some of those parallels. Matthew emphasizes this time and time again, this was done to fulfill that which was promised in the prophets or elsewhere in the Old Testament. But we see that Jesus is fulfilling the promise and in many ways is similar, functioning in a similar way to the mission of Moses. We can think of Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt into freedom, into salvation, and now we think about what Jesus is doing, leading the people of God out of their bondage to sin, the slavery of sin, and into freedom. But of course, the point that Matthew is making is that Jesus is himself greater than Moses, and what he is doing for the people is greater than what Moses was able to Offer to the people of Israel. He is offering final and complete salvation for the people. We could also think of the infancy of Moses, right? The similarities between Jesus and Moses there. Moses, too, was threatened as a baby by Pharaoh, but if you remember that story, providentially protected in the basket in the river in order 
that he may eventually triumph over the very powers that were seeking to destroy him and take his life. Now think about this story in Matthew chapter 2 and the similarities there. Do you see some of those parallels in what Matthew might be up to in telling this story? I think another underlying point that's important for us to consider is that Herod, the Roman king of the Jews, king of the Jews, is actually an enemy of the purposes of God. He is actually trying to snuff out and end what God had planned. We see that in the section that immediately precedes this. As he informs these travelers from the east, when you find this king that was born, come back and let me know because I too want to come worship him. We discover that at times those in power may claim to want to worship the Christ, but ultimately are after their own preservation. But I think something else that that detail reminded the people of God of as they hear this story is the simple fact that just because a leader is from the community, maybe that identification is just surface level, but just because a leader is from the community does not mean that they should trust them completely. In fact, that, that's made clear as we consider this very story. It is the pagans from the East. It's the foreign pagans from the beginning of the chapter who are actually God's servants. And Herod, the king of the Jews, is trying to end the purposes of God. This is a striking juxtaposition that the gospel author Matthew provides for us that I think would surely help serve to eliminate any prejudice against outsiders. One of our own, in a way, even if that's just on the surface, is actually an enemy of the purposes of God, and these foreign pagans have come to Bethlehem with the intention of worshiping this new king. So Matthew's stressing over and over again, what, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the scriptures. He is, in fact, the long-awaited king who will fulfill Israel's mission, not just to restore Judea, but really to restore and become the king for all of the earth. We continue reading verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is an episode that is commonly referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. The slaughter of the innocents. Herod is so angry about the prospect of somebody else claiming to be a king, so paranoid about the potential threat this would pose to his power that he ordered that all male babies two years old and under be killed to stop this threat. This sounds like a deranged and incredibly insecure man, right? So afraid of a baby that he would commit infanticide. Small scale infanticide, yes, but infanticide nonetheless to stop that threat. And I guess to his credit, he was 
on to something because this wasn't just another normal infant, but still, with the information available to Herod at the point, it is crazy. It seems so senseless and brutal and unnecessary. The slaughter of the innocents. Now, admittedly, this is a detail that is contested historically. Did Herod actually kill these children in Bethlehem? Is it reliable history or is it just a disturbing little story that Matthew uses to make a point? And arguments either way lack strong historical evidence. On one hand, this is the only place that we find the story mentioned. It's not mentioned in the other Gospels. We don't find Luke telling this story, and we don't find mention of it in the most prominent and trusted Jewish historian, Josephus. And so many have insisted, well, if it's not in the other Gospels, and if Josephus doesn't mention it, well, then it can't be true. It must just be a fabricated story with no basis in reality. And there are some that hold that position. Many scholars, though, note that the lack of uh, this story being in other sources is not as damaging to the argument for it being a historical reality as some have argued. And there are a variety of reasons for that position. Number one, it is absolutely in line with Herod's character. Herod's character that is confirmed historically. Here's just a small sampling of his brutality, which I know is, makes for a great Christmas message. But I think it's worthwhile in considering this story. Herod had a brother-in-law drowned because he was getting a bit too popular. Think about that. Getting a bit too popular, well, let's just go ahead and kill him. He had officials under his charge killed because he thought they weren't being loyal. He had two of his sons strangled because he thought they were plotting against him, even though it was later revealed that they weren't, in fact, plotting against him, but it was too late by that point. Just before he died, I think it was five days before he died, he had another one of his sons killed. He, had, he got so jealous of his favorite wife, that, and it turned out in that case, too, that he was incorrect about his assumptions that she was not doing what he feared she was doing, but he had her strangled to death. He had religious leaders burned alive. And maybe one of the craziest incidents, which is really saying something after we've considered some of those other details, but he allegedly ordered that various nobles throughout the land be executed on the day that he died because he was afraid nobody throughout the land was going to be sad at his death. In fact, maybe rightly, he assumed that people would be relieved and some would rejoice. And so to ensure that people were sad on the day of his death, he had a bunch of people killed. That is crazy. Does this account that we read in Matthew sound like it's out of character for Herod? Of course not. It, it actually sounds like something he's definitely capable of. Furthermore, his brutality was so widespread, so frequent, and so severe that almost certainly historians did not and maybe could not record all of the incidents of his brutality. And maybe they didn't even know about all of them. 
I think that's still true to some degree, even in our age of unlimited information that is always at our fingertips. For all of the scandals and evil and the atrocities that we are aware of, there are many, many more that we are not aware of. There are many, many more that very few people will ever know about. And so this episode is not talking about thousands or even hundreds of kids being killed. Bethlehem is a small village, and at that time, the children in that age range was probably about 12 to 20 kids or so, which of course is still disgusting and an evil to lament, and it's a big deal. But given Herod's numerous violent outbreaks, maybe this small-scale infanticide in the insignificant town of Bethlehem, maybe it wasn't something that would have even made many headlines. And so while this event may not be documented history, it definitely isn't implausible. In my view, it's not unlikely, and I, I think the reliability, in my view, of Matthew's account here is only intensified when we consider his subsequent passionate appeal to the Hebrew text to point to and give voice to the great sorrow that this event caused throughout Bethlehem. This is what we, we find. After Matthew tells us about what happened in Bethlehem, he relates it to a text from Jeremiah. Verse 17, again, the fulfillment of the scriptures. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew uses this significant lament from Israel's people, from their history, and relates it to this event in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31 speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. You may remember back in Genesis 35, Rachel gives birth to her son Benjamin, but she dies during labor and is buried near the city of Bethlehem. And then centuries later, as the people of Israel are being led into exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah depicts Rachel, who is buried near Bethlehem, depicts Rachel weeping lamenting, refusing to be comforted or consoled, expressing deep grief over what had happened to her offspring, what was happening to the people of Israel as they're being led into exile. And now Matthew picks that text up from Jeremiah and says, well, maybe again, Rachel is lamenting continuing to weep over another devastating piece of salvation history in the slaughter of the innocents, identifying with mothers and fathers in Bethlehem who had lost their children, weeping, refusing to be consoled because of the brutality and what that brutality said about the condition of humanity. This is a dark story. In fact, my, my parents were watching our, our oldest daughter last night, and 
my daughter likes to watch Christmas movies, and so they put something on for her just on Netflix, and it got it included this part of the story, unfortunately. And it's not something that you want your children to see. It is a dark story. But it is precisely into that dark, devastating, those brutally violent conditions that our God enters the world and enters our lives to bring hope into devastation, to bring light into darkness. And I think theologically, one of the points that we find going on here in Matthew chapter 2 is that no power, and, and we can sort of trace it with these parallels with Moses, no power, whether that was Pharaoh against Moses or whether that was Babylon against the people of Israel, or now in Matthew 2, whether that was Herod against Jesus and the other infants in Bethlehem, no power is able to stand against the purposes of God for the salvation of his people. We continue reading, verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Again, we find Matthew insisting on the fulfillment of Scripture, that he would be called a Nazarene. I love what Matthew seems to do throughout this gospel. Austin highlighted this briefly last week, but as we saw last week in chapter 1, Matthew poses the question, who is the Christ child? Well, he is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us. And then Matthew chapter 28, what is the very last sentence in Matthew's gospel? In verse 20, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We sang it this morning. He promises never to leave us alone. And this is a point that Matthew insists upon from chapter 1 to chapter 28 becomes abundantly clear that according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is the God who is with us. It truly is remarkable. And I know it sounds trite, but at the risk of sounding like I'm simply peddling cliches, be encouraged this morning. He is here, even now. He is with you, even now. Whether your situation looks like he is here or not. I know that in a room this size, there are undoubtedly those in this room who are facing situations right now where it does not feel like he's with you. Be encouraged. He's here. He's with you. God is with us. It doesn't always feel like that. Sometimes the world, many times, the world doesn't seem to reflect that reality. But one of the reasons we gather here Sunday after Sunday is to be reminded of this simple fact. 
to keep hope when everything in our lives would, would seek to destroy hope, to keep hope and keep faith that his promises are true. He is with you. There's something else that I think is just as significant that we find in the intervening 26 chapters of Matthew. So chapter 1 and chapter 28, God with us, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. In the intervening 26 chapters, including here in chapter 2, we find that not only is God with us, not only has he not abandoned us, he hasn't left us alone, but he is identifying with us. Even in the darkest experiences we face, he identifies with us. You know, we opened briefly with some of the parallels between the story of Jesus and even uh, uh, the story of uh, an individual like the Buddha centuries before him. One of the striking and, in my view, truly important distinctions, though, aside from the clear theological differences, is the fact that while the Buddha was born into privilege and wealth, kept far removed from the suffering and sickness of the common people. And we could say the same thing for other princes and kings born into luxury, born into royalty, kept away from the suffering of the people. When we hear the story about Jesus, he is immediately and dramatically, he not only enters the world, but he enters the suffering and identifies with the suffering of the people. His initial life experiences are on the run. On the run, seeking refuge in a distant land. Escaping for safety under duress, under the threat of death. He likely even flung into a life of poverty as his father most likely gave up occupation and income to preserve and save the family. Jesus enters our world, enters our lives, but not only enters our lives and is with us, but identifies with us, identifies with our suffering. Henry Nouwen said that the great news of the gospel is precisely that God became small and vulnerable and hence bore fruit among us. Bore fruit among us not in spite of the smallness and vulnerability with which he entered, but through that smallness and vulnerability. This is an important detail of the story that I don't think should be overlooked. God becoming small becoming vulnerable, subject to violence throughout his life. His entire life from beginning to end is spent on the run to some degree as he wanders from place to place, not accepted even by his own people, despised and rejected, which ultimately leads to his death. I love how New Testament scholar Craig Keener put it. He said he's the king of a world that is hostile to him the king of a world that is hostile to him. And I think that simple fact should also instruct the community that has gathered around him. Because if our leader, if 
our king and our Lord willingly accepted that life. His followers aren't guaranteed better than that. And while we aren't guaranteed escape from that kind of pain and hardship in the present, we are promised these two things that Matthew insists upon. We are promised presence. We are promised identification. Jesus is with you, and he gets it. He understands what you're facing. He has experienced that suffering. He knows what it feels like. He is able to empathize with you. He's not only with you, but not in a way that's meaningful. He, he's with you and understands what you're facing. Christ is walking with you and will ultimately deliver you. The Christian faith at its core is a story about the God, the ruler of everything who crawls, who crawls to meet you in your darkest moments. Your situation, it's not too far gone. Your righteousness is not too far tainted. God is with you. He meets you where you are. He sees your pain. I know some of you are experiencing pain. He sees you. He sees your sin and has not left you alone, but has come to meet you like Moses before him. He sees your exile. He says, I'm here with you. Let me lead you out of exile into salvation. And his plans and his purposes will be fulfilled. Nothing will stop it. So today we remind ourselves, we seek to plant ourselves to keep hope, to keep faith that God is with us and that his purposes will be fulfilled. If you'd stand this morning, and Kevin, if you want to come up. We are going to gather around the table of our Lord, this meal through which we celebrate the presence of Christ that is with us today. This table where we meet our crucified and risen Lord and find sustenance, we find strength as we partake. Jesus, this morning as we come to your table, as we gather around your body and blood, as we partake in this meal, we look to you as the God who saves us. We confess that we can't save ourselves. We confess that we can't fix everything that's wrong, everything that has been broken, and so we look to you. We pray that you would make us aware again of your presence. And so now we pray, Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, kindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?